0: Mokara. welcome to this mini podcast series, "Animals in Irish Society." My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I'm a lecturer in sociology at the University of Kent, and I specialize in the sociology of animals and society, the Western animal rights movement, and Irish studies as far as uh, non-human animals are concerned. In this episode, I wanted to pick up where we left off in episode one on the more animistic pagan uh, early traditional society of Ireland and talk about the major shift that happened with the coming of Christianity and the Catholic Church uh, in the early part of um, the Middle Ages. So I guess around the the 400s or so. Um, When this happened, it was a gradual process. Um, very famously in Ireland, one of the reasons that uh, Catholicism or Christianity was able to take hold was that it was quite flexible. And what this means is that rather than just coming in as a colonial force and just dominating and taking over, it was a little bit more sensitive to the indigenous culture and traditions of Ireland. So a lot of pagan culture pagan tradition celtic celticism was actually absorbed into christianity of ireland anyway and this um, is is evident in in lots of different um, rituals or saint saint feast days that coincide with celtic holidays such as um, in bulk in the beginning of february which is also saint bridget's feast day you have Christmas, which uh, of course overlaps with the uh, winter solstice, and so on and so forth. Although Irish Christianity, early Irish Christianity, was much more um, flexible and forgiving than later versions of Christianity or Christianity elsewhere on the in the world, it was still a major, major shift in um, Irish social relations. When it comes to non-human animals, the most obvious shift has to do with the changing understanding of humanity's relationship with other animals. As I argued in the first episode, early Irish uh, culture was much more animistic. And what this means is that the boundary between humans and other animals was much more permeable. The status between humans and other animals was a lot more equitable. But with the coming of Christianity, it brought with it that ethic of um, human dominance human stewardship, this concept that God had ordained human um, supremacy and that the natural world and all of its inhabitants was really there for um, humans to use. So unfortunately with the spread of Christianity came the spread of human supremacy, a much more dominating type of relationship with other animals. Practically speaking, there was also a major shift as far as the, the, the treatment of non-human animals. So with the coming of Christianity and the establishment of various monasteries, you saw um, new rules and about how humans should interact with other animals, which animals should be eaten, um, etiquette around that consumption, uh, farming practices, of course, were also going to be altered, Um it's not all doom and gloom for non-human animals. Um, many monks also, or, or many of the saints and many of the monks, many of the Christian practitioners were uh, vegetarian or vegan, um, ate um, clean, green diets in order to kind of pract- you know be closer to God and practice their spirituality. Um, a lot of the Christian um Imports included new agricultural developments. However, with the coming of Christianity, there's definitely a a marked increase in the exploitation of non-human animals who were domesticated and killed for food. Many of the monasteries, for instance, um, maintained uh, livestock, so uh, pigs, piggeries, uh, and, and cattle, and so on and so forth. St. Bridget is actually one one of those. St. Bridget is uh, an actual real person, of course, built on older Celtic uh, mythologies. But there was an actual St. Bridget, uh, uh, actual Bridget, who lived, I think, in, a, in the, the Dark Ages kind of era. I think in the 600s or so, maybe 700s, or maybe 800s, but that, somewhere in that time. But she was an actual person. She was a very powerful landowner. <laughs> and she... Um, Bridget was really renowned for her um, leadership and her healing capabilities. She's really associated with uh, milk. It was said that anyone who came to visit her was given as much milk as they could consume. Um, She was also associated with childbirth, um, and that's one of the reasons why um, her feast day is at the beginning of February when a lot of the, the sheep, ewes, were going into lamb. She's also so associated with with chickens. So so St. Bridget is really interesting. She's a um, she's a, a kind of a figurehead that's been transposed on older Celtic mythologies about um, powerful women who could heal and um, had never ending stores of animal products that she could bestow on visitors. Um, But she's definitely associated with non-human animals, so all the kind of animals that that communities depended upon. However, as I mentioned, there were a lot of monks um, and Christian practitioners who tried to eat as plant-based as possible in order to kind of deprive themselves of of more luxurious, rich, heavy, perhaps sinful animal foods. Um, Some were known to just eat grains and seaweeds, and water and abstain from a lot of other more um, uh, rich, rich dietary practices. Some of this had to do simply with more interaction with mainland Europe. Rome never colonized, never quite made it to Ireland, but it obviously did make it to the British, uh, to to Great Britain, what is now Great Britain, and obviously Ireland would have had a lot of um, trade and interaction with with Britain in these early medieval years. And so there was a lot of influence, um, and culturally speaking, not just with Christianity, that would have made it over to Ireland. As I mentioned, there was a lot of attempts with the bringing of Christianity to kind of um, create new rules about what is eaten, who is eaten, how it is eaten. A lot of this had to do with upholding this new hierarchy that had been instilled. So, for instance, there's some interesting research on the kind of cultural interpretation and treatment of horses. Horses have always been eaten. Um, In Ireland, they were eaten, um, especially by those who were in famine times, um, poor people. It wasn't an animal that was typically on the menu, but it was there as a last resort. With the coming of Christianity, there were lots of rules on which animals could and could not be eaten. Horses were part of that. There was a big taboo on the eating of horses, and some scholars have wondered... You know, is this just because of the stigma with um, poor people who ate horses, or this notion that Irish people are somehow barbaric in eating horses? But actually, there was no taboo on eating dogs, which also would be eaten by people in dire straits. What scholars think may be happening here is that horses transgressed those boundaries about what uh, different animals were supposed to do in their relationship within human society. So horses could be domesticated. But horses could also be free living and wild. And so they were boundary transgressors. And so I th- they think that one of the reasons there was a lot of um, restrictions on eating horses had more to do with kind of setting straight this new order, this new hierarchical order. This is where horses belong and this is how we're supposed to interact with them. So there's a lot of this in general happening in Ireland at the time. So Ireland was becoming, quote unquote, civilized by Christianity. This is a process that would be ramped up significantly with Norman uh, colonization in the 1100s and beyond. And then especially with British colonization. With the coming of the Normans, by the way, there was a whole new level of um, laws about um, etiquette, about sexual relations, about eating. um, All having to do with this kind of solidifying of that boundary between humans and other animals. What I do think is interesting in this process of civilizing Ireland and kind of creating this rigid boundary between humanity and other species is the Skellig Michael experiment. If you're interested in learning more about this, I've actually published an article with the Irish Journal of Sociology on the Skellig Michael experiment. Uh, I actually was very privileged to be able to visit uh, the Skellig uh, in... Oh gosh, was it 2018? I think, and it's it's a place that you just have to go in person in order to really appreciate. So there's two Skelligs, and Skellig, by the way, is the is a, it's a Gaelic Irish word for just kind of a rocky island. <laughs> what the Skellig Michael is, if you look it up and look at pictures, I mean, that's basically that's what a Skellig is. It's just, it's just rocky island that exists in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So you have to get there today by boat and it's a so it's a it's really rough waters it's really rough atlantic waters and it takes about an hour to get there in a modern boat and honestly you can't even guarantee or the boat the 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 captains can't even guarantee that they can get you out there so there's um i had a friend of mine who actually tried three times before um, they could actually get out there. So you can book your ticket, and then the captain will say, sorry, not today. I mean, the waters are just that dangerous most times of the year. So you can imagine, uh, uh, even in modern times, how difficult difficult it is to access the, the Skelligs, how absolutely unimaginably uh, difficult it would have been to access them in the early medieval years. And that was exactly the point. So, in the dark, so called dark ages of uh, Europe, of Ireland, there was a group of monks who went out to the Skelligs. Well, one in particular, there's two of them next to each other, but they went to Skellig Michael, and which, in, for all intents and purposes, is absolutely uninhabitable. And that was chosen, I think, exactly for that reason. And there were many experiments like this in Ireland and islands and. Other parts of Europe, actually, where they would go to these really remote places and set up a monastery in order to kind of forgo and abstain from the modern comforts. But Skellig Michael was taking it to a whole other level. Um, archaeologists have said that this is the, really the most daring of all monasteries that they have seen. It's, the monks who lived there really had to eke out a living, building um, shelters out of the... That's all there is on the Skellig. It's rocks rocks moss birds (laughs) that's is it and so they had to build these these uh beehive huts is what they're um, kind of colloquially called um, out of the stone and if you go there just to to transverse the island and to try to just make it up to the top where the monastery is i mean and many times you're on your hands and knees And when I got there, you know, as an animal studies scholar, it really spoke to me. It said to me, this is not just some great human experiment. This is an intentional toying with what it even means to be human. So, like I said, even just getting up to the monastery from the base of the Skellig, um, you're on your hands and knees in some places. It's so steep, so wet, because it's just a tiny little island out in the middle of the ocean, just battered by waves and mist and Irish rain And you're just clinging to the rock face, trying to safely get to the top. And honestly, I don't know how it's legal that they allow tourists out there. (laughs) Quite ominously, at the base of the Skellig, there's a helicopter pad where they have to sometimes come in to rescue people who've fallen. So when you get to the top of the Skellig, you're already on your hands and knees. You've been humbled. You've been really reduced to an animal-like state where you're just kind of clinging to survival. If you slip and fall, you're falling down this rock face down into the ocean and you won't live. It's, It's harrowing. And yet these monks made a living there. So when I said quote unquote or so-called dark ages, I think you know, we should question that because this is a time of great scholarly pursuit in Ireland. Um, Ireland really was a, not just a religious center, but an educational, scholarly, enlightened center of Europe at the time. And there were many, many important contributions to um, knowledge uh, and philosophy in early uh, medieval European cultures. And so I think that we should not take for granted this amazing experiment that took, out, uh, took place out in the, in the ocean. So when you get up to the top and there's the beehive huts that they've created and it's just a fascinating thing. You can still crawl inside of some of them and it's just a loud place. You can imagine a very loud place. It's now a bird nature reserve. There's thousands and thousands of all kinds of birds who live there because it's this outcrop out in the middle of the ocean. So it's a safe little place for the birds to come in from fishing and to nest. So it's the crashing waves. Oftentimes there's rain hammering down, there's the wind, there's all the birds clamoring, and then you go inside these huts, and it's just calm from the wind, calm from the cold, calm from all the noise. And you can just imagine those monks that are sleeping there and just kind of getting back to their primordial roots, completely eschewing the comforts of home back on mainland um, Ireland. And just living in this space where it was, you're just completely exposed to the elements. And the life there was indeed quite brutish. There's a cemetery at the top of the monastery, and they've done excavations on the skeletons. And you know, these there's evidence in the bones of those who've uh, whose remains are there, how hard this life was. And they were just really, yeah, eking a living. And so for me, when I go there as, as, as an animal studies scholar, it speaks to me about how this was not just an experiment and just eschewing, um, the riches and privileges of life. This was about really challenging their very humanity, entering this quite liminal space between civilized and natural, between human and animal, and you know, and also being so close to the celestial, this tall, rocky outcropping in the middle of the ocean. And the ocean itself also has a very deep meaning in Irish mythology and really in many cultures, um, Ireland really was on the border of the known world. That, that rocky outcrop of Skellid Michael was the last bit of civilization. Who knows what lies beyond? How, who knows how far that ocean goes? How, who knows how deep that ocean goes? And there's many amazing stories about even the, the, the oceans and what lies beneath and what lies beyond. So, for instance, St. Brennan. Uh, there's a statue of St. Brennan uh, on the Wild Atlantic Way in, in Ireland. But he was a another. He was he was a real live person, and he likely did visit Skellig Michael. Uh, He was alive at the time that it was occupied. But he, like many other saints, has it's not just a real person, but also there's a lot of mythology associated. Um, But in the myth, he actually goes across the Atlantic Ocean on this great kind of spiritual quest for Eden, and he finds lots of different. Islands with mysterious animals living on them and mysterious beasts of the ocean. At one point, he lands on an island that turns out to be a whale's back. He meets very interesting creatures that transverse these boundaries of you know what animals are supposed to do and how we interact with them. And he even the, the, all this like this this critical boundary work is just so fascinating to me. But even the 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 boat that he sailed in with fellow monks. Was made of cow skin, greased with cow's butter. And so the very boundary between the known and the unknown, humanity and the natural world, human and animal, was in the skin of, of these cows in his supposed boat. I don't know if his actual boat was made of cow skin, but that's what the legend says. And indeed, cow skin, while I'm on that topic, has been um, used, of course, in the production of early manuscripts. And this is one of Ireland's major medieval Christian con- contributions to Europe was uh, a lot of these monks did a lot of uh, bookmaking. And uh, animal skin was used in the pages, the covers, even a- insects would be ground up to produce this. So non-human animals were literally in the making of medieval Ireland. But also, again, in the, in the myth-making, in the knowledge, in the culture. And there's other myths that blend it with paganism, such as the children of Lear. And in this, in this mythology, there was a, this, these children who were turned into swans by their evil stepmother, typical. And they could not be freed until the bells of Christendom would ring hundreds of years later. And even in the, the War Memorial Park in Dublin, there's a statue now commemorating that ancient myth of the children of Lear. So Skellig Michael was abandoned in about the 1300s, and this was when there was a change in Christian practices. The Normans had come, had occupied Ireland, and, and really increased animal agriculture, transformed farming there to be much more anthropocentric, to be much more speciesist. And by the time this golden age of Irish Christendom had kind of come to an end. Uh, the, the line between humans and other animals was quite rigid at that point. Really, Norman colonization was another key turning point where the Irish church was thought to be just way too out of control and way too flexible and way too out of line with what was going on in Rome. And so colonization took place in order to reign Ireland back in, reign in the Irish church. And the dividing line between humans and other animals became much more firmly set. Things just did not look good for non-human animals from there on. Thanks for joining me in this episode, and hopefully you'll stick around for the rest to come. Salon!